The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 523. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. You've already heard about that. I've got a new class out. You're going to want it. And this particular podcast is kind of like the format you're going to get with that. So you're going to want that class. It focuses on, on the United States rather than what I'm going to do today. But regardless, great class. Also, my Southern cultural and intellectual history is on this format as well. You want that too, and so is the Originalist Papers. So all those are awesome classes. Those last two are four-part series. This newest class is just one class, 26 Speeches That Changed America. Now, you can also support the show by going to uh, brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on that support tab, get a book plate if you want an autograph of one of my books, purchase one of my books. My latest is Southern, is uh, I'm sorry, The Jeffersonian Tradition. Southern Scribblings came out before that. But I've got many others as well. Uh, you can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom, Liz- Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Great website, great educational website. Lots of good ways to support the show, but again, share it around on social media, rate it where you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. You should think locally and act locally. Great episode talking about that this week and angry, why Americans are angry. But I want to focus on this on a speech that was actually delivered in the 5th century B.C. And it's Pericles' funeral oration. Now, if you've never heard of this speech, you've never read this speech, you don't know anything about this speech, I think what's interesting about this speech is what this did for Athens. Now, Pericles was essentially an Athenian king. He was a good tyrant king. But this is delivered in the heart of the Peloponnesian War. Athens was looking at their dead and he was asked to summarize what was happening here. And Athens was fighting the Spartans, and uh, they would ultimately lose. But they were, they were challenged at this point. The Athenians were challenged for supremacy. And so what Pericles was doing was creating a myth. Now, some of it was based on reality, no question. Some of it was based on reality and what Athens actually was. But he was certainly creating a myth. And... When we talk about America and the Lincolnian myth, Pericles' funeral oration is the same in many ways as Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. 
Longer, I'm going to I'm going to read about a thousand words of it today. Longer, of course, but it's no different than what Lincoln was doing at Gettysburg in 1863. Why was it no different? Well, because Lincoln created an entire myth of America in 1863, something that Americans could rally around and still rally around to this very day, 150-plus years later. And that's not that much time. I mean, look, Pericles delivers this 150 years later. Athens was still a pretty powerful city-state in the Aegean. They had lost the Peloponnesian War by that point, but there was a rebirth of the Athenian Empire even after that. Athens came back to prominence. So this image of Athens, and you could actually say this speech was make Athens great again or keep Athens great, one or the other. I mean, you could, you could, it's not, you could say that that's really what's happening here. This is what Lincoln was doing too. He's, he's, he's attaching what was going on in the war back to the founding. And of course, that creates an entire myth of the founding and then creates this proposition nation myth moving forward. Lincoln himself recognized this. No, no, no. I mean, that, the founders didn't think about that thing. Then it's for us now to think about that idea of equality. And here Pericles, the well-respected king who would die of the plague that essentially he helped create by bringing everybody into the walls of, of Athens. But regardless, here Pericles delivers this particular speech. And the idea was to rally the Athenians to fight the Spartans and to win. But what you see in this speech is similar to what Trump was doing in 2016, what I think Jimmy Carter was attempting to, doing, attempting to do in 1979. In fact, that crisis of confidence speech is also in my 26 speeches that changed America because it did change America in many ways and how we conceptualize the Democrats, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, but it also set the stage for Donald Trump of 2016. It certainly did. Because the same guy was involved in writing, doing much of the writing for some of these things early on, the Trump campaign in 2016, Pat Cadell. So you go back and you look at these speeches, though, and you look at what this is doing, and I think it's just amazing. It's amazing when you read this. And I don't want to get into too much Athenian history in this. I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit, but it's the way the speech is delivered and how the speech is delivered. And you could substitute Athens for the United States and you can see the modern neocons in this. You can see a drive for American exceptionalism. You can see a drive for make America great again. All of that. This is nationalism to the core. This is Athenian nationalism. This could be American nationalism. And what you're doing is creating this. Now, the Athenians were cohesive, right? I mean, there's, there is one difference in that when we're talking about American nationalism, it's like trying to put together Athens and Sparta under one unit and saying we're Greek nationalism. They hated each other. Killing each other. Here, the Athenians are a city-state. It's one little state. And you can see this then applied to a state, right? South Carolina, Massachusetts. I mean, we people in Massachusetts, we're great. We're we're Bostonians. We're we're Bay Staters. This is great. South Carolinians, we're the Palmetto State. We love this stuff. You can see that then. Now that could lend well if that's the case, and we're gonna have all these civil wars. Maybe you could also uh, say that if we had a real decentral a, a union of states, and none of this would happen. If there was a real union 
of states and they and they adhere to that you wouldn't have the same type of warfare that you saw because the real issue in 1861 was centralization of power against for and against centralization of power how are we going to do that so i want to talk about this speech it's so good and again this is what i do in 26 speeches that changed america so let me get into it this is pericles he says our form of government does not enter into rivalry with the institutions of others. Our government does not copy our neighbors, but is an example to them. Now think about what he just... This is the city upon a hill. I mean, literally, Athens, the Acropolis, is on a hill. This is a city on a hill. We don't... We're not rivals with other governments. Our government is so good, everybody else should copy us. He says, it is true that we are called a democracy, for the administration is in the hands of the many and not of the few. Now, that is an interesting definition. I mean, this is what democracy is, but even in Athens, it wasn't in the hands of the many in Athens. There were about 30,000 people that held the ability to participate in the government, and citizenship was highly restricted. So the hands of the many means the hands of the many citizens, and they restricted citizenship, and even in that, um, you know, women, for example, were second-class citizens. There were very few that held the reins of power in Athens. It wasn't just a few rich people, though. I mean, that is one thing you can say about Athens. So you were seeing uh, the oligarchy with a tremendous amount of influence in the Athenian government. But while there exists equal justice to all and alike in their private disputes, the claim of excellence is also recognized. And when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he is preferred to the public service not as a matter of privilege, but as a reward of merit. Neither is poverty an obstacle, but a man may benefit his country, whatever the obscurity of his condition. So it's this participation that makes it, I mean, look, you could be the lowest member of the Athenian society, citizenship, and you still can participate. You still can contribute to the army, is what he's talking about. But of course, you still have a right to serve in the juries, an obligation you still have a right and an obligation to serve in, this, in the legislature, the, the council of Athens. That is your right and obligation. So you still have that. Even if you're poor, you still have that as a citizen. And so this, this idea of citizenship mattered. Citizen mattered. Citizenship mattered. And this was, a, to him, a great city-state, but we want the best. Now, can you say that in America today? We want the best to be in government? No. We just want the person that can talk to us the best or say the right things. There is no exclusiveness in our public life, and in our private business we are not suspicious of one another, nor angry with our neighbor if he does what he likes. Well, we are in America. If we, if we do what we like in America. We're angry. I just talked about that this week. We do not put on sour looks at him, which, through, though harmless, are not pleasant. While we are thus unconstrained in our private business, a spirit of reverence pervades our public acts. So we're unconstrained. We have a free private business. <laughs> But in our public acts, reverence, we are prevented from doing wrong by respect for the authorities and for the laws, having a particular regard to those which are ordained for the protection of the injured, as well as those unwritten laws which bring upon us, bring upon the transgressor of them the reprobation of the general sentiment. So the laws are there to protect the injured, right? So, I mean, this is interesting when you get into this, but he's saying, look, Athens is great. 
because we have this participatory level and because uh, we have a situation, a government, a society that respects excellence and respects the rule of law. And we have not forgotten to provide for our weary spirits many relaxations from toil. We have regular games and sacrifices throughout the year. Our homes are beautiful and elegant. And the delight which we daily feel in all these things help us helps to banish sorrow. Because of the greatness of our city, the fruits of the whole earth flow in upon us so that we enjoy the goods of other countries as freely as our own. I mean, this is... You could say that in 2021 in America. Look at all of our beautiful things that we have. And this allows us to have relaxations from toil. Our games, we have regular games and sacrifices. I mean, you've got to sacrifice a bull every now and then, right? Our homes are beautiful and elegant. I mean, we got nice homes and we feel delight in these things. And we have all these fruits, all these things coming in from all over the world to make us decadent. We have that here in America too. In fact, one of the things Americans have been so upset about in the last 18 months is the supply chain issues. Then again, our military training is in many respects superior to that of our adversaries. Our city is thrown open to the world, though we never expel a foreigner and prevent him from seeing or learning anything of which the secret, if revealed to an enemy, might profit him. We rely not upon management or trickery, but upon our hearts and hands. And in the matter of education, whereas they from early youth are always undergoing laborious exercises which are to make them brave, we live at ease and yet are equally ready to face the perils which they face. Look how great our education system is. We're open society. You can come in as a foreigner. We don't, we don't expel a foreigner. We don't keep them out. You're not a citizen, but we don't keep them out. And here's the proof. The Lacedaemonians come into Athenian territory, not by themselves, but with their whole confederacy following. We go alone into a neighbor's territory. And although our opponents are fighting for their homes and we on a foreign soil, we have seldom any difficulty in overcoming them. Our enemies have never yet felt our united strength. The care of a navy divides our attention, and on land we are obliged to send our own citizens everywhere. But they, if they meet and defeat a part of our army, are as proud as if they had routed us all. And when defeated, they pretend to have been vanquished by us all. So he's saying, look, our enemy, the Spartans, when they defeat us, they think they've just beat Athens. But really, we're divided right now. We've got our navy we've got to worry about, our army over here. We've got some things we're... And we're fighting by ourselves, which wasn't necessarily true. We're fighting by ourselves against these evil Spartans with all of their allies, the Lacedaemonians. Now, this next paragraph, though, is really, next couple of paragraphs, he really gets into this idea of Athens being great. He says, if then we prefer to meet danger with a light heart and without laborious training and with a courage which is gained by habit and not enforced by law, are we not greatly the better for it? Since we do not anticipate the pain, although when the hour comes, we can be as brave as those who never allow themselves to rest, thus our city is equally admirable in peace and in war. For we are lovers of the beautiful in our tastes, and our strength lies in our opinion, not in deliberation and discussion, but that knowledge which is gained by discussion preparatory to action. For we have a particular power of thinking before we act, and of acting too, whereas other men are courageous from ignorance, but hesitate upon reflection. And they are surely to be esteemed the bravest spirits who, having the clearest sense both of the pains and pleasures of life, do not on that account shrink from danger. So we're more brave than the Spartans because their life stinks in Sparta. 
Our life is leisurely. It's great. And we're, we're willing to die even though it's so great. And uh, it's horrible. It's not hard. I mean, the Spartan life is horrible. Even though the Spartan life is horrible, they, of course they're going to die for it. Our life is great. It's not horrible. So, uh, you know, we, we think that uh, we're willing to die for that because of that in many ways. I mean, this is what he's going to say. In doing good again, we are unlike others. We make our friends by conferring, not by receiving favors. Well, that, again, he's stretching the truth there. The Athenians were certainly willing to crush anyone who opposed them. Now, he who confers a favor is the firmer friend, because he would rather by kindness keep alive the memory of an obligation. But the recipient is colder in his feelings, because he knows that in, re in requiting another's generosity, he will not be winning gratitude, but only paying a debt. We alone do good to our neighbors, not upon a calculation of interests, but in the confidence of freedom and in the frank and fearless spirit. To sum up, I say that Athens is a school of the Hellas, and that the individual Athenian is his own person, and his own person seems to have the power of adapting himself to the most varied forms of action with the utmost versatility and grace. This is no passing an idle world, but truth and fact, and the assertion is verified by the position to which these qualities have raised the state. For in the hour of trial, Athens alone among her contemporaries is superior to the report of her. No enemy who comes against her is indignant at the reverses which he sustains at the hands of such a city. No, no subject complains that his masters are unworthy of him. And we shall assuredly not be without witness. There are mighty monuments of our power which will make us the wonder of this and of succeeding ages. We shall not need the praises of Homer or any other poet whose poetry may please for the moment, although the representation of the facts will not bear light the light of day. For we have compelled every land and every sea to open a path for our valor, and we have everywhere planted eternal memorials of our friendship and our enmity. Such is the city for whose sake these men nobly fought and died that could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them, and every one of us who survives should gladly toil on her behalf. So that last part of it's important. He's saying, look, the men who died here, they've been fighting for this school of the Hellas, for this great Athens. That is the core of make Athens great again or keep Athens great. I mean, this is essentially what he's saying. We need to keep Athens great. So when you look at this kind of nationalism, he brings up some issues. Foreigners come in. They're not citizens, though, but yet we're not afraid of them. Athens is so great that we can defeat anything. Athens is so great. We have so much wealth and knowledge and goods, and yet people die because they cannot think for a moment that they could live without her. Now think of the message comparable to what American greatness is all about. It's the same thing. This idea of American greatness. We can't fathom living in a world without America being great, about the greatness of America. And he said something in the speech. He said, the Spartans are fighting for their homes. We're on foreign soil, but yet we fight harder than they do because Athens is great. We're an imperial power in that case, but yet we're doing good. We're the, we're the force of good. You see, this is where historians have gone back and looked at Pericles and looked at Sparta and said, wait a second here. Who's really the north and who's the south in this issue? Would Sparta be the south and Athens the north? They're both slaveholding societies. So I mean, it's, but Sparta fighting for home, fighting in defense of their home, 
which is what it was seen as they were doing. The Athenians fighting on foreign soil to try to have an empire, to try to confer, we're the the shining city upon a hill and you should all live like us. That's an important thing to think about with this particular speech and this idea. These ideas aren't new. This type of imperialism isn't new. And there's certainly, as you go back, and a lot of the Straussians and the neoconservatives and others, they'll talk about how important these Greek examples were. And I think, look, Greece was, there's a great, Carl Richard wrote a couple of really good books on uh, the founders and the classics and uh, Greeks and Romans bearing gifts, I think the title is. You have these books on the influence of Greek and Roman history on the founding generation. You can't get around it. I'm not so certain that the founders really admired Pericles that much. They certainly admired uh, the, the, if you look at D.C. and the architecture, the, the classical revival architecture and Washington, D.C. became the Athens of America. That's not necessarily a good thing. Lincoln and the Parthenon, this is the clear connection. Pericles, Lincoln, the good tyrant king, Lincoln and the the American Parthenon, the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, you see all this stuff all around us. And this funeral oration, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, they're they're very similar kind of speeches. Uh, Die for these things, these old things that I'm saying are all about Athens. We should continue to sacrifice for these things. We don't want these men who have died to have died in vain. Let's continue to fight and win the war. Now Athens lost. They would have a peace for a time, and there would be a resumption of the war later on after Pericles died. But certainly, it's that kind of spirit. It's that kind of thing that we're talking about here. Same thing. So when you look at American myth-making, and you look at Lincolnian myth-making, and you look at the parallels between so- between uh, Pericles, excuse me, and uh, Athenian myth-making, they're all over the place. Athens could claim some of these things that he said, but were they all true? No. I mean, the Spartan military training was superior to the Athenian military training. They all had a certain, all the Greek city-states engaged in, in rigorous education based on certain things they had to learn. The Spartans just did the physical side better than anybody else. And the Spartan idea of sacrifice was even more pronounced than the Athenian idea of sacrifice. But regardless, uh, you certainly had this idea of Athens being the school of the Hellas, this great place, and we should die for it. And that's American exceptionalism. And I think that when you look at great speeches in America, American history, and you look at great speeches in world history, this is a great speech. You can imagine yourself being an Athenian and listening to this and saying, yeah, yeah, we got to go get the Spartans. I mean, we're great. Let's continue to be great. Look at all the great things we have and let's fight and die for it. And then you go back and look at American rhetoric and we're fighting for, uh, for the, keep the world safe for democracy and we're fighting to keep our homes safe from the Nazis and we're fighting to, uh, to exterminate this civilization in the South that doesn't believe in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We don't, I mean, and uh, this, this proposition nation. You look at the rhetoric of the 1863 period forward, and you see a lot of Pericles in American thought. A lot of it. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right? But it's certainly there in this speech as you know, 2,500 years old, because it's about what it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing speech. It stood the test of time. 
2,500 years or so, and it's still, you can read it and think, yeah, I mean, I can understand why Athenians, of course, there are differences between the United States and, and Athens, but you can understand why Athenians would rally around the speech. And you can also look at the speeches that I've just mentioned before. I mean, look, even though I disagree with the Gettysburg Address, and but the way that it's often portrayed now, I mean, it's a simple speech, but a rousing speech in many ways, even though at the time it was panned. So you can understand where this nationalism comes from, and it's a powerful thing. This American greatness, this American exceptionalism, we're exceptional. The Greeks, when, when Obama said the Greeks thought the same thing, he wasn't lying. I mean, the Greeks did too. Everyone thinks that their own civilization is exceptional. And the, the right gets very, how can you say that? America is exceptional. Well, Athens would say they were exceptional. I mean, so Obama wasn't incorrect about that. Uh, but regardless, there are lots of differences between, between Athens and, of course, the modern United States. So I wanted to cover this speech because this is what I do in that 26 speeches that changed America. And it's all about American history there and looking at these speeches and how they change things moving forward. We go through the speeches. We talk about them. You should pick up that class. It's really good. You should pick up the other classes where I do this with primary documents as well. Working with primary documents is what makes history fun. And you start to see these things and you start to read and dive into these things. Secondary sources are, are I mean, people say, what kind of books should I read? Read primary sources more than anything else. Read what people are actually saying and get into that, and then it everything else becomes more clear. All right. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>